0: Welcome back to the Better Way Podcast, as we continue our journey to find innovative ideas, disruptors of the status quo, and those who, like us, just feel like at times there has to be a better way. I'm Zach Kosalia. I am joined, as always, by the one and only Hui Chen. Say hi, Hui.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back.
0: Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Patrick McGowan. Patrick, say hello to everyone. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Glad to. Patrick, why don't we start by just getting to know you a little bit better? Tell us sure. who, who is Patrick?
2: <laughs> well, I can, I can rewind a little bit on my professional background. Uh, I'm currently with uh, Fortive uh, incorporated, which is uh, uh, an industrial portfolio company based in uh, Everett, Washington and I'm the senior director for global compliance auditing and monitoring. I've been there not quite two years. Before that, I was with Raytheon Technologies, but we were only Raytheon Technologies for about uh, about a year before uh, I left. I was there for nine years with United Technologies and the, the 2021 merger of uh, United Technologies and Raytheon became Raytheon Technologies. So it was kind of the same place for about about eight years while I was there, United Technologies, and that last year it was it had transformed significantly. And there, uh, I'll say it had uh, some some really great uh, opportunities there. I, I joined that company in a role I think at the time was was called fraud manager. We we changed that to forensic accounting manager. And within about two years, you know, I had the opportunity to stand up a team. I kind of you know made up the idea on the back of a placemat and and uh, really wanted to do a lot more of this work, but felt like we needed. More capabilities, more bandwidth. Now before that, I was with Pfizer, uh, in the internal audit department and a corporate audit compliance group uh, for about five years, mostly doing investigation type work around compliance risks, obviously, heavy around the bribery and corruption, FCPA, but some other, you know very interesting things as well. And before that, I was in the client serving space with Ernst and Young uh, in their forensic practice group out of uh, out of Chicago. And, and kind of before that, that's when I was in in graduate school kind of my post Marine Corps uh, career transformation, you know, where I did an MBA in law school and uh, at Indiana University. So that's kind of the high level, quick uh, overview of uh, how I wound up here.
1: So let me just highlight a few things that actually jumped out at me there. Not that I didn't know this before, because Patrick and I, full disclosure, have been friends. Patrick is a former Marine. Thank you for your service, sir. Um, And a JD. And an MBA okay. and an auditor and a compliance professional.
0: Literally all the things.
2: <laughs> yeah. Double threat, you know, <laughs> sing Druple, and dance quadruple
0: <laughs> Patrick and I, we didn't meet actually while at Pfizer, mm-hmm. although we share that on our resume, mm-hmm. we met because Wei used to organize these like salons of like-minded mm-hmm. folks who shared, uh, an interest in a particular topic. And we met. Years ago, uh, when we organized one of these at AB InBev with Matt Galvin, who's now at the DOJ, and with the two of us, and with uh, just a number of other folks who are living in the compliance space and interested in analytics. We're on this journey for better ways, and analytics and data has very much been a part of my search and journey for better ways, and it's been part of yours too. Tell us about that, Patrick. Well, there's a lot to
2: unpack there because you know, as I you know started learning in in the profession and in this field, it, it did strike me, you know, at some point that that the the two real lesser explored frontiers were this area of of analytics, you know, call it what you like, you know, data science, data analytics, compliance analytics, and I'd say the 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 kind of behavioral science, right? And and, and there's a, a a really important Coupling between those those two areas, but but it, you know, could see that other disciplines had been doing some you know the, the the solutions. Now, even if we just talk about the kind of analytic side of things, there there's other disciplines and other industries that were doing so much more than I felt like we were. Right? Right. You know, so it, it seemed like we were leaving a lot of money on the table. You know, I think people have a you know maybe a you know a, a bit of a uh, stigma about auditors and accountants and think that, that you know, that they're, it's their strength in math and their love for mathematics or something that gets them into that. It re- really isn't. You know, my goodness, have, have have marketing professionals developed some bat speed in the analytical space and use that in incredibly impressive ways uh, that, that I feel like kind of run laps around some of the things that I've seen in the compliance domain in in, in
0: some ways. The most important word I feel like you just said was mathematics. Mm-hmm because i feel like and i'd love to know, you know if this misconception has popped up in your life which is this idea that that analytics or even data science is it's reduced to dashboarding yeah. oh this wow. this concept that like said. <laughs> this the, <laughs> yeah. the, this thing that we're doing is all about yeah. creating a tableau dashboard or it's about a power bi and and it's not it's it's all of the amazing wonderful exciting sometimes complex things that are happening yeah. Behind the scenes, that often involve math. So, how do you define this discipline?
2: Great, great question. Great frame for it. And I think that's that's true. How, how do you define it? Is is a tough one. I haven't. I don't know if I don't know if I can do it. But but I'll say that that the the vast domain of of data solutions, data analytics. You know, I've started to kind of refer to as compliance analytics in, in our domain. Yep. Is is just. The, I think it's just the use of quantitative methods to solve problems. Some of the most interesting. Stuff that I see in interesting solutions are are, are pretty simplified stuff. In, in my MBA program, you now one one faculty member, Wayne Winston, it, you know, well known uh, around the world for for his uh, quantitative methods and, and things that he's done, and wrote a book in the two thousand nine called Metalytics. And you know, there was there was kind of a trend of you know Moneyball and, and and use of of you know kind of new awareness about the, the use of analytics in sports, which I, I, I personally love and think is a lot of fun. Wayne in a couple of pages in one chapter. Did a, a great simpl- simplified analysis of you know just trying to answer the question was this NBA referee fixing games in some way? Wayne Winston did kind of a two-variable analysis by creating like an expected value of the number of fouls for all NBA games, and he, he explains the computations. He used sound statistical techniques to create an expected value, and also compared that to which official was officiating a game and whether the Vegas line moved from kind of the opening line, implying that there was a lot of betting on those particular games. It's in two or three pages, such a succinct, clean analysis that is very stark in its results. Like the solution domain today, in terms of statistical techniques and and and, and data solutions, is so much bigger than what is being applied today. There's a lot of dashboarding. So I also don't want to say you shouldn't do that because I think people are getting a lot of functionality out of that. but. It does kind of leave a lot of money on the table, is the the kind of way I see it. Is is that you know there's limitations to that. There's a lot of things that that are interesting and and worth exploring, but kind of don't maybe get the attention that they should because we're all you know there's so much reliance on these you know these new data visualization tools and stuff like that.
1: So Patrick, uh, there's a couple of things that uh, that you talked about that rings back to a lot of the conversations that we've had back in 2010, 2011. Uh, I was working uh, with you in Pfizer, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we had a market that um, didn't have any issues in the past, mm-hmm. or at least you know for the past few years. When you, before I joined, had been quiet investigation, yeah. Yep. And suddenly, several investigation matters popped up in that yep. same market. Yep. So I, you know, as I was making trips to that market, I I said, you know, I, I wonder what's going on here. What what is up with this this sudden spike of cases? And someone turned to me and said, "Well, Patrick predicted that two years ago," <laughs> and so so that was the first time I had ever heard of somebody doing predictive analytics. And and, and again, this we're we're talking about you know back in a decade and a half ago. Is there a way you can help people like me understand how how did you do that? What kind of data did you look at to make that kind of predictive work possible?
2: It it was an interesting little you know evolution a couple of things one is you know just kind of the the reflex that you know trying to use data to solve problems you you know focusing on 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 some type of clean quantification comparison that would be meaningful okay so i'll I'll say that that you know in in the client serving space you know there was a a, a, i think a healthy discussion that we're having about you know our audit clients and our riskiest audit clients, and like, how do we know how effective their compliance program is, and and you know, do they have a functioning whistleblower mechanism? All this stuff, you know, when the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners they do their annual survey. Many people may be familiar with it. If not, it they kind of do an a, an annual global fraud survey. That every year, one of the prominent uh, you know answers is that you know the 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 leading way that that frauds are are surfaced is through whistleblower tips. So and it's just been that way the entire time i've been in the profession which always meant two things to me it meant, meant you know one we want that whistleblower mechanism to function really well there's there's more than just having it right you know there's 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 other you know elements of policy and non-retaliation and having it you know in different languages accessibility all that that, that kind of stuff that matter but the other thing that that was important in my mind was that kind of everything else that we're doing is a little bit in the medieval stages right you know that that if that's the best way that we're finding stuff is someone ambles through the door and blurts it out. It's like, really? You know, so all the auditing, all the other things that we're doing, you know, aren't having, you know, a better effect than that? Well, okay. So just started thinking about, well, you know, how can we get ahead of it a little bit? Because it just felt like we were always playing defense, that that things get reported and we're the last to, you know, know that, you know, whatever was going on, and maybe it's been a long-running issue and all this stuff. And and it it seemed painful, expensive, and disruptive. Well, how do we know where to target better? And then maybe we could decide to do something there, like if we know where there's you know radio silence and, and stuff like this. I, I started with trying to get a clean comparison of where compliance issues surface and which and how they're reported and, and stuff like that. And I tried many different you know modeling techniques that went absolutely nowhere. So a lot of blind alleys before it. You know ultimately. Figured a, a, a fairly simple, straightforward two-variable analysis gave me a, a lot of insight. So, just taking a per capita measurement, like it, it, it wasn't enough to just say how many issues have been reported, but having a comparability of that to, to measure it, you know, by the population and having enough people in a given jurisdiction, you know, w- was necessary. So, I think I had to have like a minimum of a hundred, you know, people or a hundred employees or something in a given country. And, and then do that measurement over six years. And it's just a simple, you know, again, a simple quantification. And and then comparing that at first to just the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index and an ordinal ranking. So not the absolute scores that they get from their all the different indices that they mash together to get that, but how they rank the corrupt jurisdictions from 1 to 180 or whatever that was. When I did that, you know, just plot those along the X and Y axis and scatter plot that it was a shotgun blast you know, just looking at that shock and blast, the, the couple of things that really stood out to me was, well, there are some places where we have, you know, nothing going on in six years and quantitatively that's just, okay, you're kind of Lance Armstrong with your, your compliance program. You're just, you're winning every time in a in a really difficult business environment. And to me, that, that did seem a little Lance Armstrong-like, you know, that, that not possible, right? Something should be happening here and it's not. So now how do we kind of shake the bushes a little bit and see, what is not surfacing? What are our other indicators just insensitive to in that regard struck me as, as there's, there's got to be something there that's undiscovered, right? So th- th- there was one insight of that. And from there, there were many different permutations of of that particular model taking, you know, not just that, that corrupt perceptions index at CPI, but there's so many other things to, that, that could be layered in there. So I started taking that same model and, and using it that way and started layering in other things that I think most people in the compliance domain recognize that it's it's marketing expense and you know that that tends to be the more susceptible vulnerable dollars in in the bribery and corruption space. So looking at quantifications of marketing expense to Opex or revenue or something like that and kind of taking all of those into that model, you know starting with a fairly simplified two variable model, but then you know kind of adding in other elements or substituting other elements was getting getting some some new and interesting insights so that that's kind of how that you know how that started. I, I, you know. Later on, I, I named that analysis the Cassandra analysis. You know, like Cassandra, who in mythology had the gift of prophecy, but no one would believe her.
0: So I just want to I want to break it down for folks. The, the original version of the Cassandra model. Yeah. So you had along one axis, you had a ratio of reports to the hotline and the size of the jurisdiction or the subsidiary, with a minimum number. Yeah. Uh, of employees required for it to be in scope. So that was that was one axis. Is that right? Yes, yes,
2: yes. And, and, yes. With, with the caveat that I did it that way, and with all issues, whether it came through the hotline or not. So, so kind of anything that surfaced an issue, whether it was kind of a hotline report or internal audit found it, or something like this.
0: And then on the uh, on the other axis, um, at least initially, you use the Corruption Perceptions Index. Yeah, just the ordinal ranking. Yeah. And, and you described it as a shotgun or a, a yeah yeah a shotgun yeah. Blast? you know, it just covered
2: the page, you know, like, and I was like, okay, I don't know if that helps me at all. If you're looking for correlation, you're looking for this concentration along, you know, either a linear, you know, axis or, or, or something, you know, some, some type of, of curve defined curve. And you can kind of see the, the mathematical relationship between a couple of variables that way.
0: Once you started analyzing the data, what, what were the insights that you derived from it? You know, what was the, the human insight that you were then able to communicate to a leader to say, I think there's something here.
2: Yeah. So, so it was a couple of things that, you know, it started, as I say, kind of a shock and blast. You just imagine, imagine just, you know, the X and Y axis, you know, just a, just a blast of, you know, data points kind of appear kind of random. But when I took like the, the you know, the the mean value, the average value on both the X and Y axis and kind of put that onto that that chart and say, okay, we, we can kind of look at this as, as maybe four quadrants. And we've got one quadrant here where it's a less corrupt business environment and there's not a lot of issues being reported. Maybe that's what we expect and that's kind of, maybe that seems to be about what we want. But we've also got a less corrupt environment and higher than average surfacing of of, of these issues. Okay, what explains that? Maybe there, you know there, there there may be you know a reason why we've got persistent issues that haven't been fully remediated or, or whatever. I was looking from west to east, you know, on, on on the chart, you know, and and it it would be you know kind of the more corrupt business environment where we have higher than re- reporting or higher surfacing of issues. That's probably what we expect too. Then I think it maybe prompts the natural questions: Are we doing enough there to get in front of those things? Uh, you know, are they the kind of things that we would expect in that space? But, you know, at least we could be confident that we're, we're hearing things. It's that, that last quadrant where it's a more corrupt business environment and, you know, low reporting over time, right? Like, you know, it, it kind of defies the odds. So here's the most interesting quadrant in my mind. It's a, it's a little bit like if I flip a coin, you know, 10 times and I tell you that I got seven heads and three tails, no one should be too surprised. But if I flipped a coin a thousand times and I told you that I got 700 heads there's no way, right? You know, there's there's kind of a regression to the mean in quantitatively, right? That that's that's just impossible. It just seemed unlikely that you know we have the same kind of let's say comparable business operations in places that have real challenges in their in their business environment and and that we're that clean, you know, that, that we're just doing it better. It, it strikes me as you know that's defying the odds in a way that's a little bit I don't know surprising and and uh, so much more likely it seemed that, that, that we ought to be looking there. And, and I think when you, you know, for experienced business leaders and compliance or not, I think everyone recognizes, you know, the, these, these things just don't get better with age, you know, that that, 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 if they're, you know, left to metastasize, you know, for long periods of time, it just gets worse and worse. So, you know, as a business leader, wouldn't you rather focus on driving the business than dealing with these, these, you know, compliance issue headaches that, you know, as they get worse. And so I, I think there was at least up on a, something about that, that, you know it it didn't require I, I think complicated mathematics or computation to to for that notion to be, I think, accessible, appealing, and you know, to see the utility of it.
0: what I love about this example, and this kind of also goes back to this point about you know analytics, compliance analytics being more than just a dashboard, is that it it's not always the case that that visual has all the answers. But sometimes that visual is there so that we know which questions to be asking.
2: Yeah, I I, I totally agree, Zach. This entire domain is, you know, as much about the interpretation of the results of whatever computation, whatever model you're doing as it is, you know, the, the, the model itself or the results itself. I, I think that's where the real meaning is. And, and maybe the starting point to how do we use that information to make our organization better, to you know, to, to, it, it shouldn't just be a science fair project that you know we show to our friends who like data science. It should be something that you know that says something meaningful to you know functional leadership or you know general management. Something.
1: So I also love this for uh, for a number of other reasons. So it, one, it's about storytelling. I mean, you mm. you have data, you plot it out in something that didn't look like there is any sense at all, but then you really try to dig in and figure out the story that this data mm. is telling you. The other part is that I, I love this very scientific thinking about, I'm going to try these different things. And frankly, I love the fact that you even gave it a name. Um, so <laughs> right? So I, I I have to say, Patrick, I don't know if I told you, but uh, when when people started telling me about the data analytics work that you were doing, um, and uh, they would add uh, this description that you know, Patrick is like something like a compliance ninja. He just does this in his spare time. Uh, so, <laughs> you, um, so, so there is another project that you did uh, that, that I know of that I actually um, have urged you to write it up uh, as an academic paper. Sure. And my understanding was that that actually helped you uh, show your management talk about leaving money on the table. Yeah. Um, so, so tell us about that other project that that you did.
2: Yeah, I, I, I know the one you're, you're you're talking about, and and it's amazing to me sometimes the mileage that that I got out of that particular uh, analysis. And and I remember in that in that case it was you know new at the company and you know they didn't to be perfectly honest they didn't know what I should be doing. So I started out just with a, a vague assignment of some expense review. So what I was learning about this expense data in in this case was a, a couple of things. One was that in this transactional data, people could use their company credit card or they could use you know cash or a personal credit card for any expenses, right? So there, there, there were so I was either getting kind of system generated transactions or manually entered expense transactions. okay. and and we're talking about you know hundreds of thousands of of lines of data uh, in in this case. And you know another interesting element was that they had a, a receipt limit like many companies do and it was twenty five bucks. So I just was curious, okay, you know, which expenses, you know, were most common under that. But then when I kind of sliced it by, you know, the manually entered ones, there was definitely the most were these self dinner meals. Okay. So did a histogram, which, you know, very simply, all this is, is kind of a frequency chart. So I was doing like a bar chart that would show the, the number of meals between zero and $4.99 and the next bar in the chart is from $5 to $9.99 and so on and so forth so that i had you know everything and importantly the count of of the number of self dinner meals that were 20 to 24.99 sounds pretty boring so far but when i separated uh, the system generated transactions right something that's coming from someone's company credit card and did that bar chart you know along these $5 bins i got a nice smooth curve you know kind of like Kind of like the sledding hill that I used as a kid. Data nerds are like like me and Zach are. You know, it's a log normal distribution. You know, kind of this long sloping to the right, right? So so you kind of see that that meal expenses have kind of a predictable distribution of 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 the frequency in these different amounts. And then when I did that with the manually entered transactions by comparison, it looked very different. It was kind of a a steep slope in those lower dollar amounts in those bins, you know, but really peaked at 20 to 24.99. Maybe some people think, well, duh, you know, isn't that obvious? But again, the quantification and comparison is important here because, you know, it's, it's again, it's a little bit like flipping the coin and, and, and it doesn't work out 50-50. We're seeing a stark difference in the frequency that people have a self-dinner meal that costs between 20 and 24.99, but only if they manually enter the amount. And, and if it's a system generator, that's not true. So, to me, this was a really surprising result. There's a very different behavior that that's implied by this, and in my mind, food costs the same whether you mantle, manually enter the amount or you use your credit card or anything else, right? You know, so this is kind of okay. That it just doesn't seem right. Started looking at other, you know, the other expense types that also had kind of a lot just below the receipt limit, and most of those didn't look the same. Some did, and some did. For example, just to, to you know, to contrast, like office supplies or something like that was one of the ones that also had a lot of manually entered transactions just below that receipt threshold. But there was no similar, uh, you know, stark difference between the frequency that had a cutoff at the receipt limit. My explanation, looking at the evidence, was well, you know, if I have to buy office supplies, I kind of need whatever I need. If I need toner cartridges, I got to buy them. But if I'm buying food. I can always go get a $5 foot long and say it was $24.99 or something. Right. You know, there's low-cost substitutes kind of all over the place. Some things there's not low-cost substitutes. I did so many permutations of this that, you know, and, and it it continued to reinforce the proposition that there's probably a fair amount of dishonesty in the incremental difference where people are saying they're you know manually entering a a, a transaction or just under the receipt limit versus a system generated one. Ultimately, I did this analysis with, you know, I think something like 1.3 million meal expenses, you know, uh, and if I took everything that was not denominated in US dollars, it was some, something like 63 foreign currencies. It had the exact same, you know, model characteristics. You know, it it had that threshold avoidance behavior, if you will, right? But people that are using uh, a manually entered expense just below the receipt threshold, but in any one of 63 foreign currencies, and it looked exactly the same, right? You'd see the the kind of smooth curve with system-generated transactions, and you'd see that you know disrupted curve, right. if you will, uh, for uh, manually entered transactions. And that just shouldn't be true in um you know just a mash of of dozens of different foreign currencies. Twenty five dollars shouldn't mean anything, but it did. You know, once we had that insight, it's like, well, you know, it's not all of the employees doing it. And when I broke it out by business unit, I kind of charted this out every chart looked the same in every business unit right you could see like that had to be something is going on there and as you exclude other possibilities like people are just losing receipts uh you know it, it became pretty convincing that this implied there's a, a a lot of people who are maybe cheating a little bit right you know so so this wasn't necessarily a, a huge amount of money necessarily for any one person but it was something. Uh, it showed a, a cheating behavior that was was pretty clear.
0: What I think is really interesting about this, though, is that even as over the years as we've pushed back on it, there's this tendency to f- think about rules, to think about compliance as sort of a series of rules and to then build even our analytics programs around a series of rules. And I, I think one of the takeaways for me from this example is that there are probably a lot of programs out there who think about this issue as how many people are actually exceeding the threshold and mm. not submitting a receipt or in right. other scenarios how many people are exceeding the amount that they're allowed to spend full stop sure, or how sure. many people are paying a certain number of of consultants more than they're allowed to pay them yeah and what you've identified here and this is the phrase that i love threshold avoidance it's not yeah violation, threshold avoidance. And so yep. what you're ultimately doing here is not just modeling data. You're actually telling a story about human yep. behavior, far more interesting.
2: But that's really the point, is that there's this coupling with human behavior. There's something connected here and, and that the quantitative model tells us something and, and, and vice versa.
1: So what I got out of that was that that you you use data to find a story about how humans are behaving in the company mm-hmm. then you use that behavior to try to then identify other areas where this type of behavior could create even more risk than yeah. just yeah. a few dollars from dinner the data leading to behavior and behavior identify greater risk and then you know sort of evolving cycle of absolutely allowing you to apply this in different ways to find different risky behaviors I, I find that fascinating
0: I do too but I you know it's interesting because I, I don't know that the better way here is analytics I mean maybe that's the bigger better way uh but the other better ways that I'm hearing from this are you said I was curious yeah yeah were curious and you did something about it <laughs> yeah. like that that's a better way like let's absolutely let's actually satiate our curiosity and explore data in ways that help us answer Definitely.
2: important questions. Yeah, I, I'm 100% with you, uh, Zach. I think what you said way also is 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 really important and interesting because you know I, I certainly don't compare you know the, some of the things that I've done to you know to, to this, but I remember reading uh, it's a great book uh, called Micromotives and Macro Behavior by Thomas Schelling, and maybe not a lot of people know him. He's a, a Nobel economist, so he, he certainly did some important work and. If you read that book there's lots of really interesting stuff in there but the intro to the book is is enough I think to kind of highlight this point that you were making way and just he describes as I recall you know he was just standing in an auditorium and people were filing in to sit in and listen to his lecture and he started just making little observations about the way that individual people you know chose their seat in the auditorium whether they wanted to be next to someone or didn't want to be next to someone or wanted to be in an aisle or wanted to be close or wanted to be further away and he kind of was looking at this and, it, you know, it, it, it was occurring to him that there's just kind of the net effect of all these little bit, the, these internal rules that everybody is going by. But then there's an aggregated effect. And that's, you know, kind of the micro motives and macro behavior, the way that, that Thomas Schelling then ultimately made some incredible observations about population movement and and and, and other things. But, but it was kind of the origin of agent-based modeling and some powerful analytical techniques and, and, and models. Being curious is is an incredibly valuable element in, in this. If, if you know, I think for someone that that doesn't really you know, isn't really interested in, in this it, it's not going to work. You're not going to really. I, I think you're going to have a hard time with with all the challenges that you have in in this, in, in this business and 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 in this this field. You really have to have, you know, something of a relentless curiosity gear that that, that helps take you to to where you're going to find some some value add, uh, uh, you know, in in the space.
0: Yeah, I mean, I let's talk a little bit more about this because I I, I love the phrase relentless curiosity. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely a quality that you want in the people who do this. I also believe that part of the reason why we find ourselves still. At sort of the earlier stages and the application of analytics in the compliance space is because we don't have the right people. Relentless curiosity is part of that equation, but yep. there are other skills that you need as well. I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about the skills that you think we need to be able to do this work well and right.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, it, it, it's it's a, it's a very interesting point because it it does feel like there's a lot of of lawyers and auditors in this space and and some of you know like i said i mentioned earlier I, i really was starting to feel that it was the data analytics and the behavioral science—that those were the two lesser-explored frontiers in our field. I think people are doing amazing stuff with this, and, and there's probably people in our field doing some remarkable things. But
0: well, gosh, if only someone would create a—I don't know—lab like in a lab. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, 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 behavioral how, science. How about that? And, and some people have. How about that? Yeah, <laughs> we so, so didn't mean to say
2: this, folks. <laughs> There, there are some really great things that that no doubt that people are doing here, but you know, I, 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 if you look at the broader practice, it's it's certainly not everywhere and it's certainly not kind of maybe predominant in, in the space. And there's still, I think the solution domain in both you know, the behavioral science and the data science space is so much bigger than than what we've applied to our problem domain as compliance professionals in, in the aggregate. So w- what do we do about it? It's, it's a great question. I, uh, you know, I, I Wei and I have talked about this quite a bit in in the past, and it still, you know, strikes me that that uh, you know, after all this time in in this field and in you know going to many of the conferences, and, and 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 there's many that are good, but there's many that uh, you know. Sometimes I'm just feeling like we're just kind of mulching over the same things that I've heard. There's a little bit of calcification there, and and just by contrast, about ten years ago or so, I started going to um, a, a different conference. Uh, I got into like a, a a data analytics working group in my company that led me to a, a group of statisticians working in one business unit, but they kind of lured me into attending the joint statistical meeting, which is uh, an annual meeting of, I, I think it, it is primarily uh, hosted by the, the American St- Statistical Association, but many other counterpart organizations from other countries like the UK and India and you know, every other country that has a professional association like that there's like 6,000 attendees that attend this six-day you know, conference, You know, all statisticians, mathematicians, data scientists. And there was nothing in the compliance domain in this out of 4,700 sessions, nothing in the financial or accounting fraud space or anything that you could say compliance. And, and even like kind of business and economics section, you know, wasn't predominant in this. But the, the thing that was amazing to me is like, I, I really felt like we were a little bit backwards in in our profession. That we're getting all of our compliance professionals together, and we're having panels of lawyers, mostly lawyers, and a you know a couple of uh, maybe auditors or accountants. I feel like there are so many, you know, PhD candidates and and other and, and professionals that are excited about data solutions and novel applications of them, and are ready and and willing to to go deep in in into those, uh, exploring those data techniques. It just you know in a way I'm a, a little bit surprised that we haven't you know, found our way to, to, to merge those.
1: I actually had contemplated at one point about yeah. proposing very concrete problems that yeah. we bring to the joint statistical meeting and yes. say, you know, we come from this unit, this other planet called compliance. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, have the- we have these type of problems. We have these types of data. How can you help us?
0: All right, Patrick, this has been such a good, amazing call. Yeah, a lot of fun. We've identified fun. so many better ways, the use of data analytics, the importance of curiosity. But now we want to have just a little bit of fun. Uh, I think we prepared you for this, you know. Yeah. We're a very human-centered organization here at RNG Insights Lab, so we want to put the human at the center of uh, uh, of the conclusion of, of of each episode of our podcast. Sure, sure. So we've created our own Proust questionnaire. For me, it was very much inspired by James Lipton and Inside the Actors Studio, inspired by Vanity Fair and 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 a whole bunch of others. We have some questions to ask you to get to know you a little bit better. All right, Patrick. So question number one, you get to choose which one you want to answer. So either sure. A. If you could wake up tomorrow, having gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Or would you like to answer B, is there a quality about yourself that you're currently working to improve? And if so, what is it? I, I mean... I I guess I'd say a,
2: and, and can, can I say like the Vulcan mind trick or Jedi mind trick? Is, is that a capability you know, totally. that that's one I would absolutely like to make use of? Yeah, we absolutely. Like
0: are, are so on the same page because hey, yeah. everyone else says, everyone else is that I'm going to give something that I, they, that, that could actually happen. Yeah actually although i think me manipulating time and you getting the vulcan mind trick is about as likely as way singing opera yeah um
2: but mr spock would have made a great compliance professional in some ways he'd get his way in the organization
1: okay so question um question number two is who is your favorite mentor or who do you wish you could be mentored by
2: so someone who is deceased now but uh, louis alvarez maybe maybe people don't know louis alvarez but he's a physicist who was awarded uh, the nobel prize in, in physics and I, I just remember the first time I encountered him, I was reading the book, The, the Cuckoo's Egg by Clifford Stoll. And I read that book a couple of times, once like 30 years ago, once about 10 years ago. And, and it's about uh, uh, Clifford Stoll starts by, you know, he's kind of like, you know, falling in the cracks in the academic space a little bit as he describes it at UC Berkeley. He gets stuck trying to solve a 75 cent accounting error. It ultimately leads to kind of an epic journey and and discovering that uh, a hacker was using their computers to break in the Department of Defense at the time, and he he helps unravel it. But at one point, you know, he's kind of frustrated with this problem. No one else cares about it, and all this, and he's sitting at a table with Louis Alvarez, this 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 paragon of, of science, as someone who, and and you know, he's complaining, he's kind of venting. Oh, you know, not enough money, no one cares, I'm, you know, I'm I'm not I'm off track on my career. And he kind of sets him straight in a, you know, a paragraph that, that Clifford stole, you know, account And he says, you know, you know, forget about all that stuff, other stuff. You're never going to have enough money. No one's ever going to care. You, you've got to run faster than this other guy. They're, you know, like it, it was, it was just the kind of tough love of, of someone who, you know, has profound achievements in, in their rearview mirror that gives them, you know, a a, a point of reference, you know, the perspective on, you know, you're wrong about that. I think that's what you want out of a mentor in many, you know, it's, I don't, it's not your champion. It's not your wartime consigliere. It's someone who is going to help you in critical decisions at times like that and, and, and steer you right where you are kind of clouded by your own biases and, and, and lack of perspective and someone else who, who has that and, and, you know, and, and takes an interest in you and doesn't. Amazing. What is the best
0: job you've ever had?
2: Yeah, it's got to be when I was in the Marines. I mean, I, I don't know. There's probably nothing else that has had quite that sense of camaraderie, shared purpose. And, you know, I mean, and and my love for our country, it was certainly not the easiest job I ever had, most glorious, but it was awesome. Uh, you know, it, what a great organization and, and great, great people and, you know, people that are in your life for, you know, the rest of your life and people that are, you know, really understand, you know, taking things to that next level, pushing your limits, um, uh, you know, shared sense of, of mission objective. So yeah, absolutely the best, best, best job I've had.
1: What is your favorite thing to do?
2: In in the autumn, in, in deer season, out in the woods, you know, just kind of having this, whether or not, you know, you actually see any deer on that particular day, but just having a direct connection with nature and just the, the, the smell and sounds of, 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 and, and the tranquility of being in the woods like that And, you know, and, you know, I've had really great experiences with, you know, one of my old uh, Marine buddies and, you know, kind of going out in the morning on a brisk November morning and then coming back to, you know, his cabin, having some country cooking, camaraderie and fellowship of all that. That, I don't know, pretty awesome.
0: Well, this is a related question, uh, which is what's your favorite place? Sometimes I also like. You
2: know, when you have that opportunity to to have a real, you know, a, a great evening out and appreciate the arts and, and maybe go a, a nice upscale dinner, but then go see the symphony or something like that or the theater, I, you know, really have enjoyed over the years, like something like Tanglewood, the Boston Symphony and the Berkshires you know, that outdoor concert. I mean, that is just, you know, incredibly fun. So uh, seeing people that have. You know, again, a dedication to excellence and and just you know, in in my mind, in a way that the the live performances of, of of you know those those kind of masterworks and stuff like that, it's just it's something to behold.
1: What makes you proud?
2: Ooh, well, uh, professionally speaking, I, I would have to say. Uh, you know, in, in recently uh, some of the people I've worked with in this business and especially some of the ones that I had recruited into, my, you know, pied pipered onto my little, uh, you know, team in at uh, in my last company that have gone on to do other things that are just remarkable and seeing them develop and take on new levels of leadership and capability and, and new solutions. I got to say that is just awesome to see stuff like that take place.
0: That's really great. And we're going to go from that, the depth of that response to the shallowest response on this quiz, also which, fun. What email sign off do you use? Well, if if it's if it's a you know someone fellow
2: military personnel or marine, I use semper Pi, uh, a lot. But most of the time, I use like best or sometimes cheers. You know, those are kind of the the most common for me.
0: And finally, what word would you use to describe your day so far?
2: Honestly, I'd have to say
0: inspiring because I,
2: I love talking about these things, especially with Zach and Wade. You know, just. People that are, are similarly interested in this and get kind of juiced about exploring new solutions. That's the, the funnest part of, uh, you know, this, this line of work. It's like any, you know, my job is like any job I've I've ever had. You may not love every task related job, but you may love your career and your role. When you get to do the most exciting parts of it and, and, and think about, you know, you know, what are the possibilities here, you know, and, and what could we be doing to me? That, that, that's an exciting element of this.
0: And you've been so generous with your time, Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you all for tuning in to the Better Way podcast and exploring all of these better ways with us. For more information about this or anything else that's happening with RNG Insights Lab, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash Lab. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And if you have thoughts about what we talked about today, the work the lab does, or just have ideas for better ways we should explore, please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.